Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everyone. This is your host, Executive Director for the American Institute of Stress. It's Will Hackman. Thank you for joining us again today. If you've been joining these podcasts in the past, and if you haven't, you should know that these podcasts focus on stress and stress-related issues. Uh, now, I know that many of you are experiencing so much negative stress right now uh, that you don't know what to do. And the first thing I want you to think about doing is to evaluate what it is that's really stressing you. Um, the American Institute of Stress has released a new way to do that. It's called the Roche Stress Profile. It just takes 15 minutes, and the RSP will show you how well you're coping in 10 key areas of your life. It includes anger and worry and fear and financial stress and time pressures, all the things that we feel. In addition, the RSP will show you how well you're doing with stress symptoms, stress outlets, and social support and overall resilience. And, you know, once you're armed with a better understanding of about your stress strengths and your weaknesses, you can begin to immediately make kinds of changes and maybe tweak the weak areas in your life and start relying more on your strengths and start living a healthier lifestyle. And you can do that today. All you got to do is go to stress.org. You'll see the Roche Stress Profiler. It's easy to do. And if you go to stress.org, don't forget to check out our magazine. One is contentment and one is combat stress. There's, there's an enormous amount of information in there and they're free. So if you go to stress.org, subscribe to our magazines, um, you get a lot of information. Check out the site. By the way, talking about subscribing, yeah, I'm going to do whatever YouTube dubs. Hey, hit that uh, like button and subscribe. Hit the thumbs up, please. It'll make my day, if not, no other reason. It's not a lot of exercise, so hit the subscribe button. You know, mental illness uh, that is often caused by unchecked stress remains one of the biggest issues in the battle against the worldwide mental health crisis that we're going on right now. It's a, talk about a pandemic. We have a mental health pandemic. And most of us are also very reluctant to discuss our mental health and the struggles that we face from time to time, and we all do. Today, we're going to be speaking to a very special guest about, first of all, a great organization and all the outstanding things that they are doing. And today joining us is Eric Cruzan, the founder of Same Here, and he's going to talk about Same Here. But Eric is on a mission. His mission is to change the way we look at mental health, and he does that by bringing together different personalities from Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, pro boxing, volleyball, uh, a lot of international sportsmen and women, but also announcers and actors and performers and musicians. They all have something in common. They're willing to talk about and tell their stories about their own mental health struggles. And that's an important thing. We need to be able to listen to these people and understand that they go through things just like us and they get through them. After a successful career uh, that started with the NBA league office and led to senior management positions with a number of professional sports teams, Eric's mental health took a sudden and rapid decline. 
happens to a lot of more people than you think. So we're going to be talking to him about that. And more importantly, how he overcame those challenges, his recovery, and of course, what he's doing now. So please join me in welcoming the very busy Eric Cruzan. Hi, Eric. <laughs> hey, doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's, you know, it's interesting, even before we dive into questions, you talk about normalizing this conversation and looking at it through a different lens and and trying to get society to refocus on it. Even and and, and hopefully you take this in a collaborative way. I, I look at it more just an observation. You brought up the term stress in there, you brought up the term mental health in there, you brought up the term mental illness in there, right? And the interesting thing is in this space of mental health generally, right? Let's let's use the overarching term mental health. Because mental illness is part of the conversation, what has been drilled into us for so long is mental health is mental illness, Hmm. right? And so with the terminology there, as opposed to a topic that you live in day to day in terms of what your work is, stress, who can't relate to stress? Everyone can relate to stress. Stress impacts our mental health which lives on this continuum, which can lead to a place on that continuum called mental illness, right? But the issue is, and we'll get deep into this, the advertisements we see, the articles we read, the headlines we read, it's depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, ADD, ADHD. It's the label. And then that gets equated with what mental health is. And now we take this topic from something that should be applicable to everyone and it's oh it's those people mm-hmm. so it's so important we started off that way almost in sharing what you were talking about that you want the takeaway to be you see people who go through things and then they get over to the other side so to speak and we're, we're all works in progress so no one is fully on the other side it's more you're in such a better place right but i want people to think about that as we dive into storytelling and the questions back and forth is this is not a story of mental illness. This is a story of how does your mental health fluctuate and how is stress a part of that mental health fluctuation? You know, that's exactly right. And I I hear it from many different people in many different walks of life. It, It doesn't matter who you are. Stress can be a good thing, but it could also be a very bad thing. And all the things that you mentioned, like anxiety and depression and things like that, they have their roots a lot of time, but very often in stress. And the way we've treated it in the past, I'm not a big fan of because a lot of it had to do with medication and, and, you know, and I understand. And and so one of the things I wanted to do, and and I know you've talked about this before, I've heard you talk about it, but it's a really important story. And that's your story and how you got started and all this and what you went through. And the reason it's so important is because other people have come on this show and I always like to get a background of people. I, I like, you know, I want to make a personal connection. Our listeners want to know we're not just talking to only scientists, although we do, um, but also people that have gone through some things and yet they're, they're looking at you right now and they're saying this perfectly healthy young man who's got his stuff together. And, and so you've been through it. Tell us about what you've been through. Yeah, well, the, the, you'll hear in a second, there was certainly time periods where I didn't have my stuff together. And I think right. that's what makes us human and, and what makes us all the same. Right. Um, no pun intended as we go into the name <laughs> of the organization, but you know, you, you, you mentioned I was a sports executive. Will. um, 
got my dream job out of college, NBA league office leads to senior management positions with WNBA teams, then the NBA team, the Phoenix Suns and the New Jersey Devils. And we go to a Stanley Cup final in 2012. And then I, 33 years old, I find myself one of the youngest, if not the youngest chief revenue officers in major professional sports down with the Florida Panthers, new ownership group, uh, loved the direction they were going in, not surprisingly seeing the how well the team is performing now. They won the President's Trophy last year because that owner has a great vision and is someone I went down there for. And so I give that background because especially when you, the audience that you talk to, high performers, successful people pushing themselves, that's who I was, right? I was the athlete growing up and then I'm the sports executive as I become an adult. And it's grind, grind, grind get to the next level, get to the next level, jump city to city, get the new position, right? And that role of chief revenue officer was one spot away. The next spot is team president. Can't go much higher unless I've got billions of dollars. I'm not buying a team. So team president is the highest I'm going to get in that in that industry. And then I, I'll, I'll be set, right? Like I'll, I'll, You could certainly get fired from a team president's role. Don't get me wrong, but if you do a decent job, I know people have been in a team presence role for 30, 40 years and, mm-hmm. and just amazing to be in one market and be parts of the ebbs and flows of the team performance. Um, six months into my time. So that soon into my time with the Panthers, I'm a single guy living in South beach, uh, <laughs> enjoying myself playing on different sports teams and leagues and recreational leagues and seeing friends who live down there. My brain and my body just start shutting down on me. What felt like out of nowhere, and and for people to know what shutting down, what I describe that as, I couldn't form sentences. I couldn't look at people in the eyes and actually gaze and have that connection. I started to get to the point where I couldn't leave my house. Right, like I had to force myself, like it was a force field, to get out of my house. I'd get in my office and I'd shut the door behind my office. And I'm a guy who loves being collaborative, loves having everyone in. I, my staff used to hate me for having too many meetings because I love bringing people together and the camaraderie of it. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was wrong with me. It, it hit a feverish pitch one night. I had to give a presentation when you're chief revenue officer role. The job is to get prospective season ticket holders and corporate partners excited about investing in the team, right? Becoming a new season ticket holder, becoming a new corporate partner. And so we had prospects in a suite and I couldn't, before they came in, think what I was going to say to these people. I never used to have to think about what my my conversation was going to be. It would just come to me extemporaneously. And, you know, I can say it right now, looking back, we had Jonathan Huberto and Alexander Barkov, two first-round picks we had just drafted. We had Roberto Luongo, one of the best goalies in the league. We had a new ownership group that was investing in the team and putting new resources in, and Dale Talon was our general manager. Look at what I'm sharing now, and look at how second nature that comes to me. None of that came to me. And I'm in front of this room of 50 people. I read off an index card, hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. It's nice to meet you. And my brain literally shuts off. And when I say shuts off, People can relate to quitting something in the past, maybe like that seems hard. So I don't want to do that. I did not quit. I'm a, I'm a stubborn SOB who doesn't like to quit anything. So I'm thinking I'm going to get through this moment, even though I'm literally having to read what I'm going to say to these people off a card. And I can't think of anything else beyond that sentence. I'll push through it. And my brain just goes, sorry, dude, we're pulling the plug out. Like you don't have anything left to talk. And I walked out to my office. What were you going to say? Something you just, you, you. I know I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, okay. I, you know why? Because you were an athlete. 
I, I, w- I was not on your level as an athlete, but I, I've been an amateur athlete. Yeah. And I'm equating this at, oh, my God, I know what it's like to play through an injury. Injury. Yep. But you couldn't play through that. It, it, when we talk about Simone Biles and the narrative around that and stuff like that, it's fascinating because you know what stress does to the body, right? And stress is a piece of this overall, which we'll get into the science of it. I had no idea what the hell was going on in my mm-hmm. body at the time. I didn't know for mental health. Mental health wasn't on my radar screen at all. So I, my my brain is shutting down the way that you see a computer blue screen. That's what it feels like in my head. And my owner and our team president come in the office after the game and I'm sitting there blank stare. I don't know what I'm doing. Eric, you know, is everything okay? We want to be supportive. We could tell something's up and, and both West point grads, military background. So when you talk about working with military, you know, they certainly that's their fabric. And, and I said to them, guys, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know if I have a brain tumor, if I had a traumatic brain injury when I played sports growing up and it's just manifesting now, I don't know if it's this thing called mental health that people talk about. Like, I don't know what it is, but I'm not being a good employee for you. More importantly, I'm not being a good human for me. Like something's not right. And and the way that I'm sharing that right now is certainly not how it came out then. It was like jibber jabbish, I'm sure, in a way that they barely made out what I was saying. But Vinny, the owner, um, he said, this is probably the closest I'll ever feel what it's like to be a, a member of the military. He said, we never leave a soldier out in the battlefield. Take as much time as you need. One month, two months, three months. You're going to come back. You're going to hit the ground running. We love what's getting built here, right? And when I heard three months in that, right, one, it was a supportive message. 2015 is when this was happening. <laughs> that was not the commonality of if you share something that your, your employer is going to be supportive. But I heard three months and my mind immediately went to, well, what do I know about when the brain goes wrong? Oh, I've seen those commercials where uh, someone with a gray cloud above them and dark and they're, they got a boulder connected or they're holding one and and they got a sad face look. And then 15 seconds into a 30-second commercial, a pill is introduced. Mm-hmm. And then the gray clouds go away. There's a blue sky. The birds are chirping. The sun is shining. And the guy's smiling, right? So it's not that you think it's going to be that easy. It's that you're told that the way to get better is you have this thing called a chemical imbalance and you need the substances, the chemicals that are in the pill that you take, which is even a misnomer in itself because they're called SSRIs, reuptake inhibitors. They're not actually synthetic forms of the the neurotransmitter. They're just blocking neurotransmitters getting reabsorbed. Whole nother side note to that. But the indoctrination, if you think about it for a second, when we're young, we get strep throat bronchitis and pneumonia. Our parents take us to the pediatrician or the family doctor, whatever your family called it. The nice guy or gal, white coat. They give you bubble gum tasting medicine when you're younger, when you can't swallow a pill. And in two days, you feel better. So why wouldn't it make sense that when you're feeling symptoms of lethargy and brain fog and exhaustion and like you're carrying that boulder, Oh, by the way, many of the symptoms that come with strep throat, bronchitis, and pneumonia, okay, you don't have the respiratory symptoms related to it. That's fine. But you've got all the other things. Why wouldn't you think what I'm supposed to take is that stuff that then just does its work to get me better, right? It fixes me. It, 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 in the best analogy I can give one of the NFL players we work with, 
it's us waiting for the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain to get us back home to Kansas to do it for us instead of us having the shoes, the ruby red slippers the whole time and being able to do something with it, right? Well, one of the things that you said, you know, I, not to interrupt you, is that no, no, no. when we're young, when we go to a doctor which practices medicine, so what do you think they give us? Medicine. And that's not always the answer. It's not all. Look, you, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of should we be giving antibiotics to young kids, even just right. antibiotics, because of what it does to the gut floor. And like there's so many. But but at least with antibiotics, we know they work. Why? Because we go from having this thing of a really sore throat to then we're back in school running around on a playground. Right. So when I say the indoctrination, like antibiotics, even if they ha wreak havoc in other ways in fixing, and I mean fixing, having this thing called strep and then it no longer being in your system, it works, right? Like the antibiotic works. So, so if you're, if that's your idea of what a pill is, then when you're given a pill for your brain, because you think there's something wrong with your mental health, you think that's going to fix me the way that the antibiotic fixed me. And, oh, okay, they give the on the commercials that it could take four to six weeks to, quote, kick in, right? And that you might have to try more than one. So when I'm hearing three months from my owner, I'm thinking to myself, who the hell's not going to – as bad as I feel right now, I couldn't pick up the phone and order off a menu because I couldn't remember what I – had read to then be able to communicate it to the person who was like, but it was like the motherboard of my brain was fried. And it's, it's a classic symptom of brain fog. It's a, I mean, I've, I recently have spoken to people who went through a grieving process and um, what led up to that was taking care of somebody in hospice for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And, they, and they had the same stress symptom, which is brain fog could not remember where they put their keys, could not remember how to start their car. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, this is really extreme. No, it's not. Yeah. So. And it happens very often. How old were you when this was going on? You said about 33. Yeah. So between 33 and 35, because the next, what happened was I go to my first doctor up in New York, by the way, it was so bad that I needed my parents, one of them to come. So my mom came down to Florida. She flew with me. I, I was so agoraphobic. Mm. Leaving the apartment was difficult for me. So I left all my stuff in the apartment. She literally handholds me as a 35 year old man, 33 at the time, maybe 34 being exact and handholds me. And I'm like, I have my headphones on. So I don't have to speak to anyone. Like people who are in that phase and they know what it's like to get that far into the spectrum talking to someone, the social interaction feels like a kryptonite in a way. You feel like you literally have no powers to be able to communicate. And our body's a system, right? I'm, it, because we're talking about stress, I'm going a little out of order how I usually share this, but I, I think it's important for people to keep equating things to a system and how stress overrides a system. We have computers that blue screen. We have a cardiovascular system that gets overwhelmed with plaque and creates a heart attack or a stroke. Why wouldn't our central nervous system be able to be overloaded, right? But, but we don't think in those terms because that's not what that's not what's told to us. What's told to us is we've got a brain. The brain is the only thing. It's got a, a balance of chemicals, and the balance of chemicals comes off. Right. So when I go home to New York to see my first doctor, probably a lot of people can relate to this. I'm asked to fill out a, a, a packet that's about five pages deep 
circling answers one to five. How much do you agree with this statement? Life is really awful now and I don't want to live. How much do you agree with this? Right. And, and all the doctor does when I get in the office, it's like, even from an efficiency standpoint, it'd be nice if he had a Scantron thing to be able to like run my little bubbles right. through it. And he didn't, he's literally sitting there 15 minutes of my session, just adding up with a pencil, the numbers on, on my sheet. And he just looks up at me, he goes, Eric, you have a shitload of depression on top of a shitload of anxiety. You need heavy artillery to knock this out of you. Okay. So what is heavy artillery? Medication. Yeah. I leave my first appointment with five prescriptions. Jeez. An SSRI, what we were talking about before. Okay. A benzodiazepine, a booster for the SSRI, an off-label drug that's supposed to be supportive of the booster. That was like for, I think it was called Namenda, though I could be mixing uh, names up. That was an Alzheimer's drug, but they said helps work with the S. I mean, it was just madness. But again, I'm an athlete. I'm a stubborn SOB. I'll do whatever you, you tell me to do to get better. You want me to run the stadium stairs? I'll do those. You want me to do 50 push-ups? I'll do that. Okay, this is what they're telling me to do to get better. Give it to me. I'll take the horse tranquilizers and all the stuff I need to get better, right? Yeah. So that my plan was, all right, these five, and if it's not these five, they'll tweak it. And if it's not those five, they'll tweak it. And three months is an eternity. Unfortunately, three months turned into two and a half years of absolute dysfunction. Laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to podcasts, just dead to the world. And for people who hear that and are like, how the hell did you lay in a bed for two and a half years? You feel like you're running a marathon every single day. Yep. So first is you're trying to sleep because you back to what we learn as little kids. When you take the antibiotic, sleep makes you all better. Curl up in a blanket and have the matzo ball soup and, 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 and your body will heal itself. There's a truth to that. The body heals itself, but you need to help the body heal itself. And when you're a little overtired, sleeping a little extra is good. When you're in a bad place with your mental health and you're sleeping 16, 17 hours a day. And while you're sleeping, your brain is revisiting a lot of the mm -hmm. same issues that it never dealt with that. You don't realize that that was happening. You're not getting better from that sleep. But you think you're tricked, you're you're mesmerized from that sleep was healing from before. So you keep sleeping and keep sleeping. So my days were split up, you know, sleeping 12 to 14 hours a day. And the other 10 hours, I'm literally holding on for dear life because what these medications were doing to my thought processes, you know, you're sitting there being like, okay, nothing's coming to mind right now. How do I have a blank mind? You're your own worst enemy saying, why is this happening? How did this happen? How do I get out of it? That's not helping your stress levels. <laughs> That's no. not bringing your, your sympathetic nervous system down. That's racing it up higher. And well, oh, you're on this yeah. terrible merry-go-round. Merry-go-round. Because you're, you're, you're in this state of high stress that is affecting everything in your life. You're taking these drugs to combat it. And while you're doing all this, you're thinking about <laughs> how stressed out and how terrible it is that you have to take all these drugs, which is causing you to stress out more about here's, it. We've here's been, an analogy that's hopefully helpful, right? If, if in the mental health formula, drugs, taking the drugs are your equivalent of going to the gym, which they're not even close, but let's just say that's supposed to be the positive thing that in physical health, 
You go to the gym for that two hours. You're a warrior. You do full two hours at the gym. If you do two hours at the gym for your physical health, but you eat nachos and potato chips and French fries and and uh, and cheeseburgers, ice cream throughout the rest of the day. Wait, what was that? Ice cream. Don't forget that. ice cream. Yes. <laughs> What does it mean that you went to the gym, right? So even for the people who believe the medication is working for them, what are you doing during, the, during those waking hours when you're not feeling right and your brain is caught in that feedback loop of what you're, I call it eating cheeseburgers of the brain, right? We're feeding the brain these bad thoughts. And that's why getting out of a mental health decline is one of the hardest things for a human being to do because we're wired to fix it. We're wired to say, what's wrong? What do I need to do to get better? And then unfortunately, as what happens, unfortunately, with a lot of people whose families call me, sometimes the system becomes so overloaded that the person loses the ability to even fight to get back. And the parents are like, my, my son, my daughter, I can't get them out of bed. I, I'm hearing these exercises you're teaching, but they don't even care to get up. They just say they're, they're done. They, Oh, shit. Okay. So fortunately for me, while I had the shutdown happen and it was two and a half years of misery, part of the negativity of going on in my head and not, sorry, my, oh my God, that lens keeps popping up. Um, part of the negativity of being in that circular loop, yes, was keeping my sympathetic response as high as it was and not helping me heal. But because I'm such a stubborn SOB, I was, what, what's it going to take me to heal? You need to get me to the next doctor. Like I would go to doctors who wanted to do talk therapy with me. So they were psychiatrists that actually would do talk therapy. And they look at me and they go, Eric, you're incapable of having a conversation right now. Like they would say this to me and, and, and I, well, what do you want, Eric? I, I don't, I can't do anything with you right now other than tweak the meds. I, I know you came to me because that's my specialty of being able to do the talk therapy I can't, you're, I'm asking you questions. You're not even responding right now, right? You know what? I think a lot of people feel what you felt right there, what you're describing right now. There, a lot of people listening have gone through it. A lot of professionals, mental health professionals, have patients like that too. And they can definitely understand exactly that spot right there. So we, we, what did you do? So, so... I'm I'm on this merry-go-round of I got to get to the next doctor, the next doctor. And and I have images in my mind of going and seeing whiteboards where there was one line that said SSRIs, right. uh, you know, Zoloft, Lexapro, Paxil, right? SNRIs, then MAOIs, then tricyclics. And they're literally crossing off the ones that I've tried, which is what led to the 50 different ones, as if I'm a dartboard and like, that didn't work, so let's try this, that didn't work. And then you get all these theories from them like, your dopamine's low, so you need to be on Wellbutrin. I can tell based on how you're feeling. It's a dopamine issue versus a serotonin issue, right? And at the time, you're buying into all this stuff because it's giving you another reason that something else might work. Because when other things haven't worked, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're just grabbing for, please, give me a doctor who's going to tell me something that's different than, than to just take a different version of the same pill, right? So the fact that there's four different classes, at least the main ones, of these antidepressants, you're like, Okay, shoot me up with them. Let's do it, right? Skipping a lot of the details of the misery of what those awake 10 to 12 hours a day were, I'm holding on for dear life. And eventually, I'm told to do TMS therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation. They put electromagnetic waves into your brain through either a helmet or this half moon shaped object. For me, it, it started in the half moon shape. Then they were like, we need to do more intensive. And they put the helmet on my head. So they want you to do TMS every single day. 
They don't want you to skip days. It's $350 a session at the time, not covered by insurance. So any savings you have is gone. And obviously, depending on what your what your lifestyle was like before, but you're looking at yourself pissing money away, which you're you're happy to do if you're going to feel better. And again, new treatment, different than medication. So let me try this. And this is not an indictment on TMS generally. I mean, I, for those people that it works, I, I I applaud you. I think different things work for different people. It just was not agreeing with me. And the night of the 23rd treatment, going into the morning of the 24th, I'm I'm using my hands for anyone who's just listening. I'm on the edge of my bed at four in the morning, going into that morning, the 24th, stopping myself because this repetitive thought is going on in my mind over and over again. Swallow that bottle of pills, swallow that bottle of pills, swallow that bottle of pills. Mm-hmm. Now, the fascinating thing about that thought, and, and we could do a whole other segment on suicidal ideation because I'm open about it. And I think it's a fascinating what happens to our brain. How is it possible that a, a bottle of pills that I've only seen in my life before as something I take once a day from this full bottle and that once a day pill gets me better and once a day pill gets me better. How does my mind make the shift? No, that's something that you can swallow all of them. And in fact, we're telling you to swallow all of them right now. And that will get you out of this pain and misery. That was not an active choice is what I'm trying to share. Something happens in our wiring. I believe it's deeply coded in our DNA that when the stress trauma level reaches a certain place, the bridge breaks and we go from survival. I want to get up. I want to do things reward center to system overload abort, right? I'll hold my phone up to share this. I use a lot of analogies. We get messages on our phone when it's out in the sun for too long that the system needs to shut down. Okay. Our, our central nervous system again is a system. Why doesn't it make sense then for all the suicidologists out there who are studying all these reasons my plea would be listen to people with lived experiences because them describing what's going on in their mind is how we unlock the key to this, not just doing these you know, meta-analysis studies and all these other things. Talk to the people of what it felt like. How does your brain go from seeing a bridge as something that you cross over between two land masses to something, it makes sense for my body to hurl itself over the side of that? How does a train go from, it's something that gets me to my destination more quickly to I feel this compulsion to throw my body in front of a 70 pound, and I'm sorry for the trigger for anyone, a 70 ton vehicle that's moving at 70 miles an hour, charring up my body. Logically, that doesn't make sense. That I'll tell we, you what was explained yeah. to me about that, because yeah. that's a really good point. And, and suicide's a big problem. It's a big problem amongst our vets. It's a big problem amongst people. And there's a lot more people out there than many of us realize who have that thought. And the, sociologists or psychologists and and the psychiatrists I talked to, a few of them have said to me that suicide is a comforting thought. And it took me a moment to really understand that the thought of suicide, not the actual carrying it out, but the thought of suicide is a comforting thought. So at that moment in your life, when you're thinking about this saying, well, at least I could do that to stop all the, but here's, here's what's interesting. And look, I think suicide happens in a macro sense in two different ways. One, are there people who choose it because it's potentially a comforting thought? Maybe, right? That, that's what the doctor's saying. I'm saying I never even had that thought. Like I can, my brain can go to deep places to go like, oh, well, it's not a comforting thought because if I die, I don't know what's after this. So it might right. be more miserable than the misery that I'm in now. So it wasn't a comforting thought. So what I'm sharing is the action of doing something that hurts yourself 
I think is hard coded and hardwired in us that when the stress trauma level gets to a certain place, our instincts kick in and the drive is we're seeing objects and things as what gets us out of this situation. And it compels us in a magnetic pull towards it, as opposed to I'm actively thinking there with a, you know, pro and con list. This is good. This is bad. There's more bad than good. So I don't want to be here. Right. No people have done that. Exactly. And so, so if we have that, I get it. And I know we're going a little off tangent on my story, yeah. but I think this is an important right. deep dive is, but, but we also know that there's, there's some people that, that, that do it. And then there's some people that there's no note. It happens in, instantly. We have no idea where it came from. Yes. They were dealing with stuff, but we didn't see any talk of, of that. And it overwhelms it. And if you look at it, 2017 Harvard behavioral health study, 87% of people who were surveyed who had attempted suicide and survived, unfortunately, you can only <laughs> interview survivors, had the ideation within 24 hours. 27% had it within five minutes. Impulsive, 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 in my opinion. We get overwhelmed. This was what I experienced at the time. I can't stop myself from that bottle of pills. Fortunately, I'm around my family and I was like, you got to take me somewhere. You got to take me to a hospital because I can't stop myself from something compelling me. Now, to be even able to have that thought, Will, shows you I'm not choosing that. If I'm asking someone to get right. me out of a situation that feels like it's pulling me towards it, something's taking over me, right? And if that's the case, getting that message out there about suicide is so important because now it takes the shame out of suicide. And I don't mean to make suicide okay. I mean, make suicide okay to talk about that I lost a family member to suicide so that we have more people who are willing to get help. Because right now, if the belief is it's a choice, then the people who are feeling the ideations right now are going, shit, I can't open up to anyone about that because they're going to think I'm out of my mind as opposed to I'm sick and there's something wrong and I got to get help for it. And so if we can open up this idea that suicide happens to us, I call it a heart attack of the brain mm -hmm. that helps people understand it. Like we don't choose for a heart attack to happen. Now we might've made poor decisions where we eat those cheeseburgers a lot <laughs> and the heart attack happened because of that, but we're not sitting there hitting a button going, I choose heart attack. I, I don't believe in many cases when I say many cases percentage wise, I think a large number of them are, it happens to us with the suicide. If that's the case, Let's get that narrative out there so that people don't feel shame around this topic. And if I'm suffering with those thoughts and you're a stranger on the street, Will, I can grab you and go, Will, I'm having those suicidal thoughts the same way I can grab you right now. And there's no judgment if I go, I have a pain in my jaw on the left side and a pain down my, my, my left arm. I think I'm having a heart attack. I would have no shame in doing that. You know, Why that's exactly right. grabbing someone about suicidal ideation? I lost a friend, a, a brother in my motorcycle club to suicide. This was a young right. kid who had everything going for him. He was the kind of kid who showed up in the room, lit up the room. We all loved him. Never, ever said a word of any about anything he's going through. And we're not strangers. He could have said anything to any of us. We talk about everything and we would all jump to his but did not and we still to this day i don't know why I, so let me let me ask you okay so we, we're talking about where you are yep and it's a dark place yeah it's a hard place it's a people talk about challenges this is a battle this is a war and you're at war with yourself 
Yep. How'd you get better? Well, so I go to the hospital. The doctor tells me that my last resort, because of all I tried, is shock therapy, right? ECT, she goes, mm-hmm. in fairness, she calls it electroconvulsive therapy. You don't have friends to call up and go, hey, when you were dealing with this and you were offered shock therapy, did you get it, right? So you listen to what a doctor says. And when a, when a, when a top doctor with the plaques on the wall says last resort, which is one of the big motivations for why I started a mental health organization, I don't want anyone to ever have to hear those two words ever again. When you hear last resort, you're thinking, I got to do this because there's nothing else that can help me. So 12 sessions over five weeks of being put under general anesthesia and given my brain shocked into seizure, essentially to try to hard restart my computer. I don't get better, leave the hospital thinking my life is over. I've got this thing called treatment resistant, fill in the blank. And unless Merck or Pfizer invents a miracle pill, I'll never get better. Where the story turns to directly answer your question, so my parents, I told you, were former educators like you. Um, and so they go to these continuing education courses all the time. So they go to this course called Integrative Breathing Practices. Okay, mm. Didn't know what the term integrative meant. I'd never done a breathing practice before in my life. So that doesn't relate to me. I'm not like, and my mind is off in the clouds anyway, so I don't pay much attention to it. My mother runs back from the course at night. We, we met this doctor. She's a psychologist. Her name's Donna. I can't explain what she does, but... She, what she says is so different than all these other doctors you've been to. I know you were told last resort, but please go see her. So three days later, I sit on our couch and every appointment I've been to, I think most people will care about stress, have been to a therapist's appointment before or have been to a psychiatrist. Let's use that. Psychiatrist appointment, every single one of them happens in three segments. It doesn't matter how long the appointment is. Segment one is, hey, Will, nice to meet you. What are your symptoms? You were talking about brain fog, right? You list the symptoms off. Segment number two, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. Now, I was diagnosed with everything from melancholic depression to anhedonic depression to PTSD, OCD, ADHD, ADHD, every alphabet soup of the DSM-5. And then based on your diagnosis, here's the medication that fixes that diagnosis, right? So she treated the appointment very differently. She said, Eric, couch is yours. I want to know who Eric is. Tell me the story of Eric's life, right? Now, think about that question and how different that is from how we all converse with each other on an everyday basis. Will. How's the podcast going? Will, what's your relationship with Daniel Kirsch, right? We talk in very specific segments. We don't ever go big picture and go, tell me about you and how you describe you. <laughs> That's a heavy question, but it disarms you. And so what came out there was when you talk about fighting a war, I didn't realize I was fighting a war as a kid. I just knew it as life because I only know one life. So I go back to some of the earliest memories. I'm the middle of three boys. My older brother, I'm eight, he's 12. This is when it all starts. He breaks his femur bone, sporting accident, put into a body cast for a year, homeschool. Heals from that. Month later, gets diagnosed with ALL, children's form of leukemia. So late 80s, early 90s, not the best prognosis, but miracle through all the harsh chemo and radiation, he goes into remission. Month later, he's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends, open top, open back, no seatbelt in the back, car loses control. He flies out, lands on the Meadowbrook Parkway here cracks his head open in ICU, loses partial vision in his eye. Heals from that, goes to college, gets a relapse of the same leukemia he had as a child. Now they have to give him a stronger chemo regimen. Stronger chemo regimen sends his body into septic shock, 105 fever, falls into a coma. Coma for three months. We don't know if he's going to wake and if he's going to wake, if he has any brain activity. Miraculously wakes full cognitive faculties about him, but his kidneys fail from being in the septic shock for that long. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I get that job at the league office. 
three of my close friends in that first year passed away back to back to back of misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions. So why do I share that level of detail as you ask me how I got better? Because what the doctor said to me at that point is she stopped me. And I, and what I just shared in three minutes really took me 45 minutes because I went through each of them in detail. She said, Eric, I know I told you I wouldn't ask you another question. What else happened to your mental health as a child and a young adult that I need to know about? And I said, Donna, I'm 35 years old. You asked me to tell you about my life. That's all I did. And, and I started at eight, some of my earliest memories, and I went up to 22. That's 13 years later right now, and I have a chemical imbalance that's related to my chemicals in my brain. What is what I just told you have anything to do with my mental health? Now, that might be a very ignorant take, right? But that's how I thought about it in at the time this was happening in 2017. And I would bet you most people who are not mental health aficionados still in 2022 still believe that, right? Because if you look at the article and the research about chemical imbalances, 90% of people surveyed said that mental health is caused by a chemical imbalance. That's what the layman believes, right? So here's where the stress part comes in. I think people will find really interesting and where I found my healing. She knew I was a sports executive. She's not a sports person, but she gave me a sports analogy. She said, if you had a front row seat for an NBA basketball game and you were in a nice suit and you were entertaining clients and these NBA players were seven feet tall, running up down the court, sweating as they did and they ran by you and the sweat hit your suit or they dove for a loose ball and they landed in your lap, you'd leave after three hours of the game with your suit all sweaty. You'd put your suit away for the dry cleaner. You'd take a shower. You'd shower the next morning, put a new suit on, and you'd go into work nice and fresh like the sweat never happened from the night before. You had a front row seat, but your front row seat wasn't for an NBA basketball game. It was for the game of life. And the game of life was represented by your brother in a muddy wrestling ring in front of you and your friends in a muddy wrestling ring next to them, next to him. And every move they made to try to pin the game of life to stay alive, the mud was splattering and hitting you in that front row seat, splattering and hitting you. The biggest difference between this game and then the NBA game is you didn't just stay there for three hours, three days, three weeks, three months, three years, 30 years. You've been sitting in the same seat for 35 years as this mud has been caking up and building on you. And you weren't even so paying attention to the mud. You were looking at the Jumbotron and how nice the video HD board was and the crowd and how loud everyone was and how everyone was cheering and the music in the arena. The analogy there is I was looking at my sports accolades and being captains of teams and getting a first job that was my dream job and running around and working for different teams. Like you find things in life that make you happy, that you enjoy. Meanwhile, this stuff is building inside your central nervous system. And so that mud that I was describing that was hitting me from that front row, she tells me this is stress and trauma. First time I'd heard those two terms together. And I said, okay, let me get this straight. If that's what impacts our mental health, stress and trauma, and it doesn't even have to be what we go through directly. It can be what happens to people in our lives that we care about. Take me out of the equation. Take the average 15-year-old, 20 years younger than me, watching things happen to other people in their lives. Okay, watching your parents have fights and potentially get a divorce. Watching your parents lose their job and potentially lose the house. Watching your two best friends' friendships break up because they're fights and they never want to see each other again. Watching your best friend being broken up with by a romantic significant other and they're being crushed for the first time ever by being broken up with. Watching them deal with being bullied on a schoolyard or verbally abused or hearing about them from them directly being sexually abused or watching them deal with the sickness of a loved one at a young age or the loss of a loved one at a young age. 
I don't know a 15 year old, let alone a 35 year old, 55 year old, 85 year old who hasn't been through one summer, many of those things. If that impacts mental health, everyone's mental health is impacted. And that's certainly not what the narrative is that's out there. So she takes a deep breath and you can tell I get passionate about it. And I was probably even more volatile when I was sharing it then. I was like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, this is, this doesn't make sense. She's like, Eric, you're right. I think everyone's mental health is impacted. I'm an integrative psychologist, which means I believe our brain is a camera, takes everything in, holds it and stores it. We don't have a delete button. We need to do something about what we take in and what we store. You didn't do anything about it, not to your own fault. But yes, it impacts all of us. Can we help you get healthy first? Then we'll attack this larger societal thing that you're interested in. So I said, okay. So she sends me, this is again, more directly your question, to a weekend breathing course. I'm the only man, only one under 40 and only one born in this country in the, in the course. It's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. Have the picture from it. It's hilarious. I'm wearing a cut sleeve basketball t-shirt and shorts. Like they're all in like traditional, like Indian garb. Like I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it, uh, that's how I should call it. Thank you for giving me the name. It's almost maybe derogatory the way I say it, but meaning they were just dressed differently than I was. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like a fish out of water, but I became so friendly with these women because they were explaining to me how the breathing practice helps. And I'm asking the instructor. And as an athlete, you want to know why you're being asked to do certain exercises. Why are you telling me to run stadium stairs? How's that going to get me better in basketball? Because oh, you're going to wind yourself more than what it takes running on a flat surface. So that's why we make you do the inclines and the declines. Okay, I get it. I'll do them, right? Well, why are you telling me doing a breathing practice? And the joke I said to the instructor is I breathe every day already. Mm-hmm. I'm doing breathing practices. What, what do I need to breathe for? So now I start learning about the vagus nerve. When I start learning about our amygdala function, I start learning about cellular inflammation. And now, okay, if our brain and our body are connected by this nerve, that starts to change in its tone of how it sends the messages between the brain and the body because my entire life was lived like this. What's going to happen? Where's that ambulance going? Is it going to my house? Because it's always gone to my house before, right? When you're caught like that, then you understand doing rhythmic breathing patterns is going to start to loosen that vagus nerve and create greater tone and allow it to conduct the messages it needs between the brain and the body more. So I do it for 30 days after this course, supposed to do it for 40, 30th day, I wake up and two greatest feelings I've had. I looked at my controller and my mind goes, I want to turn the TV on and see what's on. Okay. And the other thing was, I want to make scrambled eggs for breakfast. So I had an urge, two urges that I didn't have for two and a half years that put me back online, so to speak. It was an urge to return to normalcy. Well, the urge to return to normalcy and fairness was always there. Like I was always like a fighter, right? But urges in terms of natural urges, like I don't need to make these up. Like I don't need to, oh, why am I laying in a bed? I got to get out of this bed. This was like, I woke up and the controller's there and I'm like, I'm interested in what's going to be on. You know, I have a hunger craving, like a hunger pang. Wow, it's amazing. And so I took my story that I just shared with you. I didn't have social media. I didn't have Instagram or, 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 or Twitter at the time. I had Facebook, which was just to watch what my friends were doing, and LinkedIn, because that's how sports executives stayed in touch. And I was what you would call a voyeur, right? Like, I'm not one of those people who posted things. So here I go. I write my story that I just shared with you. It takes 35 minutes to read, a lot greater detail than what I even just shared right now with you. Let it loose. Put it on LinkedIn. 
three days it gets shared over 150,000 times amongst the different social networks together. And I have over 400 calls coming in because I put my telephone number on there from as far as China. (laughs) And I'm fielding these calls. I still have the Excel spreadsheet. So I know I got back to 316 of these people, right? Some of them more in-depth conversations than others. But, But when I was talking about labels, depression, anxiety, PTSD, sounds hyperbolic. Not a single person on these 360 calls led the conversation with, Eric, your ultimate diagnosis was PTSD. I suffer from bipolar. Can we talk about how they're similar or different? None of that. Instead, everyone was latching on to what happened with your brother? What happened to your friends? I lost a child to SIDS five years ago, and I've never been the same. I'm a married mother, two beautiful kids, white picket fence, but I broke up with my boyfriend of four years in college 10 years ago after those four years of dating. And there was a knot in my stomach when I made that decision that morning. And even though I'm with my soulmate now, I still have that same knot in my stomach. I can't get so my realization at that point, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. I got a crash course in my 10,000 hours, a lot shorter. But the thread that I'm realizing is what ties the human condition together is not disorder. It's not labels. It's not mental illness. It's not this thing called depression. It's challenging life events that all of us go through. We don't recognize them necessarily as challenging life events because we've only lived one life. So we're like, oh, just keep on moving, keep on going, right? And then eventually they build to a boiling point. And for some people, the boiling point to, to what you were sharing is major dips. And to other people, it's brain fog, malaise, you know, cognitive distortions. For other people, it, it manifests in obsessive thinking and obsessive actions. I think those depression, anxiety things, those are underlying genetics that we have that only creep up mostly. I'm not saying there aren't some organic ways that these things happen, but I think what it is is if you jumped out of a building and you weighed a certain amount, you might either break your ankle or tear your meniscus. Your genetics of whether you have very strong joints in terms of your ligaments versus your bones are going to dictate whether the stress of the body coming down broke one or tore the other, right? Maybe it does both, but but using this as an example. I think stress and trauma built over time bring about the manifestation of the genetics of what's underlying that is those things, depression, anxiety, PTSD. So the common thread are the stressful and traumatic things we go through. The common thread is not the disorder. And we flipped it. When I say we, the powers that be in the pharmaceutical industry have convinced us what mental health is, is depression and anxiety. And, oh, there's these awkward other ones that make you worse, like bipolar and schizophrenia, right? And and I, I think about that model and I go, that is the perfect sales model for them, right? And I go to these, you'll see what I'm saying. I go to these websites, NAMI and Mental Health American, Bring Change to Mind and Active Minds and Jed Foundation. And it's nothing against these organizations. They do amazing work. Their marketing messages could not be further off. And I, as, as a good person, I want to believe it's because they're just missing the mark. As a skeptic, I could say it's because they're in partnership and get funding from a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. I call spade a spade. I'm not saying anything that's not public information. You could look at their filings of where they get their funding from. You go to these websites, there's three consistent messages on all the websites. This was in 2017. It's still now five years later. First consistent message, one in five people are mentally ill. Why are you even starting with that stat on a mental health website? So you're now shaming the one and telling the other four and five, you're healthy, fine, normal, and okay. So now there's a binary conversation about mental health. You're either mentally ill or you're in the other four and five category. Yeah, you could look out if you maybe go into the one and five, but you're in this other category. 
who does that help? We all go through these challenging life events that doesn't help anyone. It makes it separate. Right. Then to normalize the conversations, their campaigns are an action word followed by stigma. Stop the stigma, stop the stigma, break the stigma, race the stigma. Football has kicked the stigma now. Baseball has strike out the stigma. So they all copy each other. Well, if we have a binary topic as the underlying message, and you're using an action word in front of stigma, stigma is formed by human beings making unfair opinions and judgments about other human beings. When you say stop, stop, and break, that's a command. You people over there who are the healthy, fine, normal people, you need to stop doing to this poor group of people over here that we're protecting. You need to stop doing those mean things to them. Does that bring us closer together or pull us further apart? Right. It's terrible. It pulls us further apart. Last thing, all the way that the celebrities stories were being shared. You're not alone. Britney Spears has depression too. She's part of the one in five. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety too. She's part of the one in five. And then they link to an Us Weekly or People Magazine article and it's Mm -hmm. Britney Spears has depression, shades her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess. Add these three things up, Will. It's for one in five people. Let's stop stigmatizing that poor group of one in five. And if you want to know if you're in the one in five, you run off the basketball court in a panic attack like Kevin Love, you say crazy things about your family and think you could run for president like Kanye West, and you shave your head like Britney Spears. There's a reason why even with more and more athletes coming out and telling their stories and celebrities coming out and telling their stories, we're not getting much better in this stigma conversation, I don't believe, because we're just reinforcing the same misnomers that have existed in this space for so long that create this thick line between sick and healthy. And when Simone Biles has to pull out from the Olympics, she's depressed. And then you get comments from people like, well, if she was depressed, she shouldn't have gone to the Olympics. She should have given the spot to someone else. That shows that the message that they want out there is getting out there because they think it's you have it or you don't. And they don't realize Simone Biles was actually the greatest example of how stress and trauma affects our ability, our brain, our body to communicate with each other. She was raped by Larry Nasser. Her brother was on trial for murder. She had both of these things leading up into an Olympics where she was the only one on that Olympic team that had been raped by Larry Nasser. Okay. So now she goes and she's what they call the yips is a brain body connection breakdown. That is mental health, right? Like there's no other way to describe it. You can say it's the yips and it's a separate thing. It's mental health. Our, our brain body connection, our neural circuitry starts to go awry. But the beautiful thing was she stayed there and she rehabbed back and she got into the individual competition and won a medal. What better example do you need to see that mental health lives across a continuum, can fluctuate, you can work on it, and it's based on the stuff that happens to us as opposed to just being, oh, she's depressed, so she can't compete, she just has to pull out, right? This is the stuff that I'm I'm, I'm motivated by, Will, to, to change the narrative around and why I work with, you mentioned at the beginning, athletes and entertainers, and then doctors, and the way that we know Daniel Kirsch and inventors of these modalities, these non-medicated modalities, I'm not anti-medicine. I'm anti-medicine being told that it's a cure or being shown as a cure. Exactly. It is not a cure. It is an aid. It's a tool in a toolbox of many tools. And in fact, I would say it's the tool that is the band-aid that helps you then do the actual work you need to do, the havening, the tapping, the EMDR, the yoga, the mindfulness, the breathing, whatever your exercise of choice, just like at the gym, you have your exercise of choice. You might like the treadmill. I might like the elliptical for cardio. doesn't make either of us wrong, just what our body reacts to, right? And you so- know, I just wanted yeah. to tell you that, first of all, about the uh, breathing thing, 
and a big topic. It is. And I learned about it as well when I first started getting into all of this. And it was immensely helpful. And, and I try to promote that as much as I can because it's free. We do it like you said, we're doing it anyway. It's learning how to do it right. That helps us so much. It really does. Um, I don't want to go too long. Your story yeah, yeah, is so engaging and so compelling. And I'm so happy that people are hearing there's some there are people out there just like us. And it's not a, a cookie cutter cure. And it's, you know, you'll hear me make that statement at the end of every show. Um, what I did want to ask you, though, is, to, is if you could, because I don't want to go too long. Yeah, of course. Is I, I want to for people to know about same here yeah absolutely and, and can you give us i you can i know you can talk about it for four hours but and and maybe we can do another podcast yeah, just yeah. about that which i would love to do but i want people to have a place to go yeah and absolutely. know that 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 there is there just listening to you they already know that there is hope and that there's, you know, you can get through that black tunnel and come out the other side and you'll be okay. You'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to share it. So, you know, to your point, yeah, I probably could talk about it for four hours. <laughs> I'll try to truncate it into three minutes here. Um, same here, global.org. And then social channels at same here, underscore global, right. Um, we're an ecosystem of athletes, entertainers on the front end, everyday people with those athletes, entertainers, reporters, uh, C-suites, executives, all sharing their stories of what happened to them so that you can come to the website, come to the social media to read about how divorce impacted someone, how sexual abuse impacted someone, how breakups impacted someone. Okay, now I, as a person who's struggling, see, oh, it's not about depression. It's about what happened to me. And then it led to this thing where I'm feeling this way now. Okay. Now that I get that I'm part of this community, that's this global community that everyone is actually a member of five and five, not one and five. Okay. Now I'm more willing to engage next step of that in the resources. We have something called a scale, same here scale. Those places that you were talking about with stress that, that shift the body. You said stress is a good thing. Absolutely. Early on in our scale, our scale of six places, thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking. In thriving, gliding, and surviving, we're in this place of psychological flexibility. We can go between, I'm in the moment, I'm rest and digest, to I need to jump into action. And then I can go back into rest and digest and jump into action. That's called psychological flexibility. As you start to get to the middle part of the scale, you're hypervigilant, fluctuating and struggling. Oh, I, I'm constantly thinking about worst case scenario. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You get to the end of the scale, sinking, that's where the shutdown starts to happen because you've been overwhelmed for so long. Well, if you're able to track that in an app that we give people access to online, or you can print out your own version of it and just circle it. And if you want to just have it manually in a journal, you can do that. But now you're tracking how you're changing and there's common language to it. And in that common language now, instead of you and I speaking, Will, and the, how are you doing? I'm all right. You, I'm all right. And there's no answer whatsoever. It's two brick walls talking to each other. You have six responses and you know it's linear. And it's not numerical, but hey, I've been fluctuating lately, or I've been thriving lately. We get to have a sense for how we, a language for ourselves and language with each other. So the scale is the second piece. Third piece is on those resources, you'll find the science of what's happening in the body. 
What's happening to the vagus nerve? What's happening to the amygdala function? Why is important to know the science? So that now the final piece, you can access what we call star exercises, stress and trauma, active releasing and rewiring, right? Or a gym for the brain. So the way that we know Daniel Kirsch is we brought together all these gurus who invented brain spotting, um, you know, uh, uh, ART therapy, not art as in drawing, like accelerated resolution therapy, ACT therapy, um, you know, leaders in researching fields of havening and tapping and EMDR so that we have a network of these gurus who are sharing for free to your point. It doesn't cost anything. Come to the website and see, oh, what exercises work for me that enable me to shift that nervous system away from a place of psychological inflexibility back to flexibility where I can start to feel myself again. And this thing called depression and anxiety doesn't take this pill to cure the depression or anxiety. It's me shifting my nervous system back to a place of pre-trauma state where my body can start to heal itself. But the key is it's work. I'm not going to lie. I had to work to get back. That breathing practice was being diligent with it, right? And why should that be any different? When we put on weight, we have to go to the gym. We have to eat well. Should be the same case with our brain knowing when our things don't feel right, we don't just take the pill that makes it better. So I hope everyone finds those resources. The last thing I'll say is on the website under programming, you'll see that we do programs in five different areas, K through 12, same here schools, right? right. Uh, colleges, same here sit downs, offices, same here safe. Uh, servicemen and women and first responders, same here service, and then sports teams and leagues, even all the way down to youth sports, we call same here sports. All these concepts that we're talking about, we go out into the market, boots on the ground, and we teach these concepts so that we're training the trainer. The coach can learn this stuff and do it with their, the, the manager at the office can learn this stuff. The social emotional director at the school can learn this stuff. And it's not just we're triaging the kid who's in crisis situation. It's how do we all work on ourselves because life's going to happen to all of us. So, so hopefully that's a lot for people to be able to come and look at on the site and on the social channels. And, and, and we engage with everyone. There's back and forth. We'd love to hear from you. Well, I think it's a great resource. You know, the American Institute of Stress, we, we strive to be one of the leading resources for people in stress and mental health and finding their way to to, to contentment. You know, I, I hate to always use that. You know, you go to stress.org, we, we, we share similar things. By the way, um, uh, Eric mentioned Dan Kirsch. It's Dr. Dan Kirsch, who's president of, of the American Institute of Stress. And uh, you can find out some information about him there as well. But there's also a lot uh, of resources. I hope, Dan, I hope Dan, Daniel doesn't hate me for leaving the doctor part out. No, it's, it's okay. fine. He's very cool about it. Yeah, and, um but we also plan the American Institute of Stress plans and, and, and Eric will tell you that with the partnership with same here and do some work together. We're in the midst of doing that. So <laughs> look for it at stress.org and at same here and you'll find it. Eric, I got to tell you that I really feel that we've just scratched the surface. I really do feel that. I say that often when I'm talking to people, but we have to make it and kind of bite-sized segments of the podcast of and and um, i know that you're always two minutes away from your next meeting um <laughs> so, i got four i got four right now okay so i i, I want to thank you first of all for sharing that story i know that when guys like you come on it really does 
help people. I talk to people in a lot of different fields, education, uh, first responders, uh, in all kinds in sports and all kinds of fields. And there is a commonality of what you've been through. And there's a commonality of the people out there who are listening and watching that they are going through as well. And, and they need to hear your story and many others. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm going to have to ask you to do this again sometime. I really am. I'm, whenever you get the uh, moment to do that, and we'll talk more about the specifics of how stress and in particular caused a lot of these problems that we just don't realize. And I think the conversation is getting more common now, but we need to, to, to bring it home a little bit. Maybe, maybe this is a good way to end with this, with the stress I think stress has always been a common term. I don't think people realize how much stress can wreak havoc on your system cumulatively when you don't pay attention to it and don't look at the signs that are starting to come about. Because I certainly did, and look at how it knocked me on my butt. Exactly. And it's happened to many. All right. But anyway, thank you for joining us. And everybody, go to sameheareglobal.org. Find out a lot more information um, you could always go to stress.org and find out more information. And again, look for us partnering up in, in the near future. So this has been your host, Will Heckman. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Do not forget to please follow this podcast, send in those reviews, make a comment in YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe. And remember your support helps keep these podcasts and all we do at the American Institute of Stress uh, possible. So I want to remind everyone that, that just as stress is different for each of us, there's no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means that you need to join us next time as we explore more stress management strategies and insights. And remember to visit us at stress.org to gather information, tools, and techniques to live a happier and healthier life. And I hope the information that you heard today from Eric and myself will help you find contentment. So good day, everyone.